Welcome to the Ag Future Podcast, presented by Alltech. Join us as we explore the future of farming, food, and nutrition. I'm speaking with Bill Northey, Undersecretary of Agriculture for the Farm Production and Conservation Mission Area. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Your role at the USDA is still fairly new, but your history with agriculture is quite extensive. Can you talk a little bit about the role the USDA played as a partner for you over the years as a farmer and as Iowa State Commissioner of Agriculture? Sure. I I farm up in northwest Iowa uh, and uh, have always participated in the farm programs. Uh, Now those programs are farmers of the audience will know ARC and PLC, some Lots of acronyms, lots of acronyms at, uh, in government agencies. But these are programs that help support when prices break significantly lower. Uh, certainly have as well been a participant in the crop insurance program. Uh, and so crop insurance is a program that is offered by USDA through private insurers. Uh, so uh, have always had crop insurance on our farm uh, most of the time. Uh, don't trigger a loss, but when we do, and we've had a couple of disaster years, it was critically important to allow me to be able to have enough resources to be able to farm again the next year. Um, and then the conservation side of USDA has been important as well. Do some cost share programs, whether it's incentives uh, around um, cover crops or, or other kinds of programs. Participated, had small amount of CRP uh, program, the 10-year reserve program, conservation reserve program, that just on a grass waterway that's through one of our fields. And so several different pieces uh, that I've been able to use. And then uh, the last 11 years, I was Secretary of Agriculture in Iowa, uh, and uh, uh, we partnered extensively with USDA. So half of the Department of Agriculture in Iowa is around conservation programs. Uh, so conservation, soil, soil conservation, water quality programs. Uh, we, we, our offices in Iowa, we have 99 counties in Iowa. We have offices in each county, um, and those county offices were shared with our with NRCS, with our state conservation folks, and with local conservation folks. So we partnered greatly, um, and as technology changed, we try and talk about the, the kinds of things that will work on the new water quality programs. In fact, we, we changed the title of our Division of Soil Conservation to the Division of Soil Conservation and Water Quality as we increase more effort looking at reducing nitrate and phosphorus that were in our waters both in urban and rural areas. So lots of opportunities uh, to partner with USDA programs. Now we get a chance to be able to look at some of those programs from the USDA point of view. Right. And where do you hope to take this new department as a future partner for farmers in the ag industry? Well, certainly our charge from the secretary is is a very customer-oriented USDA. And in my pieces, uh, the Farm Service Agency, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and Risk Management Agency uh, are those most customer-facing kind of parts of USDA. So that's where farm programs, conservation programs, and crop insurance all is. Um, so the secretary has charged us with finding out what is working for producers out there, what needs to change, how do we be efficient, effective, and customer-focused uh, in what we're doing. Uh, 
We're going to be measuring customers' attitude towards the things that are happening at the office. We already are measuring workload analysis as we look to place people around the country in the 4,500 offices around the country so that we understand the right places to put people. We're looking at technology. Uh, we have a website called farmers.gov where we offer some information, and as time goes on, that'll become uh, a portal where they'll be able to apply for, check up where they're at on some of the programs as well. So more opportunity for folks still to use their county office, but they're sitting in a tractor waiting for a truck to come and pick up a load. They can also possibly report on some of the activities or check out on some of the activities that they'd like to do with uh, some of the USDA programs. So lots of opportunities to be more customer focused, uh, to be more customer oriented, but we've got to discover what that is. And that's going to be different between Maine and, and uh, New Mexico, uh, and between Mississippi and, and Montana. So we have to understand what's the most needed services and how we're doing. The customer experience is really, it feels like a new concept with the Ag Department. Did you ever feel, um, as a farmer, like a customer, or how do you tie those two in? You know, you always do a little bit, and and I think it's uh, the, the actual definition and the engagement to the to the degree that there is now is certainly a step up, but... But I'd argue, as you look at our county offices out there, those are the folks that people think of when they think of USDA. They don't think of some undersecretary that's a 1,000 miles away. Uh, they think of the folks in their county office. They know their operation. They know which programs will work for them. Uh, and maybe we didn't define or measure customer service at the time, but everybody knew that you could go and you could depend on your staff there in those county offices. As time has gone on, we burdened them with a lot of paperwork as we try and dump new programs on them, give them lots of opportunities to, to find other programs uh, that will help people. Uh, it creates a complexity that takes them away from some of that customer service. So I think the, you know, we're, we're trying to understand uh, the approach that business has taken towards customer service. There'll uh, be a lot of folks that say, you know, banks a long time ago understood that there was a customer service aspect and then some lost it. Now they're refocusing. Government hasn't always focused on it either. Uh, certainly that's a desire of Secretary Purdue and especially for the mission area uh, that I have responsibilities for. Hmm. Innovation and being wirelessly connected is also critical to this industry. How do rural farmers fare with staying connected, and what have you seen are some of their barriers? And any idea how the U.S. compares to other countries in this arena? Uh, certainly, we have some areas with a lot of connectivity, and folks are able to use their GPS on their tractors and have high-speed internet at their farms and other things. And then we have a lot of areas that don't. Um, uh, others that have better numbers exactly of how we sort out what those speeds are and how we compare to some other places. But we can drive across this country, and, and you can have even a fairly populated area where your cell phone coverage drops off, where there's not a good high-speed internet. And that is, as you say, increasingly important because so much of the technology we use now needs to be able to connect, needs to upload information. 
We have livestock buildings out there that constantly report to farmers via their phones what the temperature is, whether the feeders are full, um, what are the waters working or the fans are working. Um, we have planners. Uh, I just had somebody shoot me a Snapchat last night of him on his planner. Um, seven monitors in that planner cab, all doing different things. And, of course, his feet were up because the tractor was driving itself across the field, and he was able to Snapchat me um, in his last field of planting soybeans. But, again, he's got to be able to have a signal to be able to do that. Um, and uh, and that information is likely being constantly uploaded uh, to a computer back home or maybe even uh, to a report on what his planning progress is to his crop insurance agent uh, or eventually to his FSA office as well. So we have some real needs in broadband. That's a focus of, of some parts of USDA. The secretary has been very engaged in that. Uh, rural development is the arm of USDA that probably focuses the most on that. Um, but it's going to be increasingly important, uh, and we have a long ways to go to catch up to where we need to be. And crop insurance is also a vital safety net. You mentioned that using it as a farmer yourself um, and, and operating in an increasingly unpredictable environment. From what I hear in my interviews with farmers, current payouts don't account for conservation practices and risk management. How does a lack of data and ability to be connected with Wi-Fi and wirelessly connected affect the ability for insurance to account for the effectiveness of risk reduction? Yeah, it's a challenge to uh, to rate um, risks appropriately. Uh, you know, if you have a large amount of crops and they're all treated the same way, it's pretty easy to be able to do that. And for the most part, we're able to do that with our larger crops very easily. Uh, but when you have smaller acreages, when you have a lot of variability in the value of that crops, especially specialty crops, uh, you look at an apple crop that some of it goes to a fresh market and some of it goes to a process market and and the and the production techniques vary to be able to say to make sure that folks are are doing things that raise a crop appropriately or not trying to uh, abuse the crop insurance program you've got to be able to have some oversight in what's going on you've got to be able to rate it all properly um, and around the technology changes on conservation right now, we have cover crops or we have other kinds of good conservation practices that if they're not done right, can actually put the crop production at risk. So can cover crops increase yields? I believe it can. Um, I use cover crops on my farm and I know a lot of folks that do. It also can add risk if you use cover crops in a dry production area and you don't get them uh, terminated in time before that next crop and you take moisture away. So how crop insurance is able to get the information uh, that best represents what's happening and can show uh, that, that good practices were used. Yes, there was a loss, but good practices were used and that you're able to test all those practices over time. Uh, is a challenge. But I believe technology is going to help us as we report more of those practices and we're able to rate those to a greater degree, compare those with, with yields as well. So it's a challenging time, but we have more and more tools to be able to address those challenges as well. Do you feel like cover crops became less of a conventional method in agriculture and is that kind of coming back now? 
Yeah, there probably was a time, certainly before we had some of the tools we have today, that cover crops were generally used. Uh, we went away from that, and we do see it coming back. Um, in Iowa, we we encourage cover crops to a large degree because of water quality, and there's a significant improvement to water quality. You don't lose as much soil erosion, so phosphorus issues, but also nitrate uh, is held in the soil longer in that time when the crop's not growing in the spring. But farmers have really adapted them because of uh, controlling erosion, um, being able to build soil health, um, that feel of tilth, being able to build organic matter as well. Uh, so we in Iowa have grown uh, in the last six or seven years from about 50,000 acres of cover crops to over 600,000 acres of cover crops. So we do see uh, some real um, advancement of cover crops in some areas, uh, certainly in the Midwest and in places that were pretty low on cover crops. Um, but we see it in lots of other areas as well. And people are innovative. We're getting some new um, genetics in some of those cover crops that let them grow a little bit better in cold weather that allow them to not be so competitive uh, against the crop, but very competitive against the weeds. So uh, there's a lot of uh, opportunities to be able to increase the amount of cover crops with all the benefits that that creates out there, not only for production. Absolutely. But the offsite benefits as well. Mm-hmm. And where do you see public-private partnerships playing a role in programs like the Regional Conservation Partnership Program? You know, it's a great program. And, and uh, certainly in Iowa, Secretary of Ag, within USDA as well, we look at the only way we're really going to scale up the amount of conservation that is needed out there is, is not with large amounts of new public dollars. It is engaging folks the right way so that we can bring those private partners uh, to the mix as well. So Regional Conservation Partnership Program is a program that helps encourage partners to work with a program that generates some federal dollars, brings partners to the programs. Got them all over the country. I visited several in other places besides the one I'm very ones that I'm very familiar with in Iowa. But it has brought thousands of partners across the country together, um, tens, actually, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars of non-federal government dollars uh, into those partnerships, private dollars, organizations, uh, farm organizations, non-farm organizations have been a part of it, certainly state governments and local water conservation and water quality agencies have been a part of it. So it is a great program. Um, there are some things that uh, that Congress is looking to adjust. It, it kind of came out of a program called EQIP. And uh, that program, because it came out of there, requires uh, a certain amount of paperwork to be able to make sure that you prove that folks are spending the money the right way. We can add some more flexibility if it's funded on its own in a separate way. Uh, it still will be uh, oriented towards the right kinds of projects. It'll still bring partners, but it'll actually allow a little more efficient management of those dollars as the reporting requirements can be better. So Congress is trying to address that, and I think that will be very helpful, and I think that program will absolutely grow in the future. And there are a lot of people watching the EQUIP program. There are, absolutely. It's a it's a great program, really our most popular program, uh, and RCPP as a, as a spinoff from that uh, is probably one of the other most popular programs. 
big data in farming is also growing. I dare to say that there isn't a John Deere tractor or any other major distributor that doesn't have a machine coming off a line that isn't readily connected to the cloud. While the information that can be shared offers greater weather predictability, uh, precision in pesticide and fertilizer application, it also tracks productivity. There have been reports that farmable land is getting sold off in lieu of sprawl. How does this value-added information help farmers argue that land is more valuable in production than out? And what scenarios could you see where this might play out in the future? Yeah, I, I think we are able to capture some of that transition. Uh, we're not always able to capture it, but we can capture it several different ways. One is uh, one is through the technology that are in tractors, but but probably other ways are how program signup is going on and whether people have crop insurance. Once you once you convert it to houses, you don't have crop insurance anymore. And we're able to look at some of that participation rate in in some of these programs, but. But we do have to uh, uh, try to keep, especially that good land around our cities. In fact, a lot of our cities are are put in the easiest land to build houses, and that's often very high productive farmland. We need to be able to protect that. We we do actually have some programs at USDA too, where some of our states or or private entities will partner, and we have easements where a farmer that is in the path of, um, of where development will happen will sell off those development rights, continue to farm it, will pay them some portion of the difference between what development rights and farming would be, and they then will guarantee, will promise, uh, are required to not allow that turn into development. We keep those areas in open spaces. We keep that agricultural initiative going in that area. And certainly most of the time, the folks that are in the development around that really appreciate being able to have that. So it's important productivity-wise. It's important for the viewscape that folks have. It's important many cases for water quality, although we have challenges in our ag land, we have more challenges in our urban areas uh, on water quality issues as well. So the right mix is important to try and retain. For a farmer that might be up against something like that, what program would you advise them to look into? Probably the easiest is to go to their county um, service center. You have a USDA service center in every county. Um, it's, it's called the ACEP program. And that conservation easement program, uh, we don't have, we offer it out of USDA and not every state participates and certainly not every region has it, the, the local dollars that are required for matches, but uh, the folks in your county office would know. And there's probably some programs outside the programs we do that allow folks to address um, that ability to, to keep land in agricultural production even though they they would like to get some of that extra value. And sometimes it's because of an off-farm error. Sometimes it's a transition from from one generation to another or other reasons you need to generate some dollars. You just don't want to lose the fact that it's a farm. Mm-hmm. A farmer who has this technology compared to a farmer who doesn't has a significant upper hand when it comes to negotiating sharecropping or renting land. For instance, the farmer who has the tech can go to the landowner and say, I can produce X amount on this land and earn this profit. Or the farmer who hasn't tapped into the cloud might not be able to argue production rates as well. How do you balance some of these larger farmers who can afford the tech with the owners who aren't tapped into this cloud technology? Technology comes at us lots of different ways. Some of it's very... um, 
size oriented. So it's much easier to afford that technology on a planter tractor um, that is covering 4,000 acres and then covering 400 acres um, because the cost is nearly the same uh, to, to put that technology on a tractor. And so there is some uh, non-size neutral impacts. And now buying seed uh, that has some technology on it is is often just as easy for a smaller producer as it is for a larger producer. So some of our technologies are not as size sensitive. And uh, there are lots of reasons folks decide to rent to different farmers. Um, we have some farmers out there that have... Uh, uh, that are smaller producers. Uh, they will talk about their ability to respond uh, much more specifically to the to the land to increase organic matter, maybe longer rotations. And there's some landlords that will say, "I'll take that," uh, even over maybe a little higher annual return from somebody else because I believe you're going to protect the land, you're going to keep it in a place, you're going to do some positive things that are not only good for, for our neighbors here that I can be really proud of, but build the value of that land. Uh, so there's lots of, lots of decisions that go into deciding who you're going to rent to and who you're going to rent from. Technology plays into it. Um, not all technology is going to make a producer money. Um, there's a lot of whiz-bang kind of to technology. It's kind of interesting to see but how does it create value Boy, a lot of folks have figured out how to be able to create value out of some of that technology. And we're seeing it on smaller and smaller farms now as well. The ability to turn a planter on and off as it goes across point rows and angled fields and other kinds of things. Now we're showing up on farms of five or 600 acres instead of just farms of five or 6,000 acres. As these farmers are putting this information in the cloud. There's debate on who has access to that and who doesn't and being able to protect that. But who's to say that ag companies using a compilation of this data won't one day decide to farm themselves? You know, it, that could happen. Uh, they will certainly or they can have some information. There's a lot of tension out there over how much information. Most of the farmers are going to say they know some things that are not in that data um, that... that um, uh, will still limit the ability of somebody else to farm it. The other thing that happens is the uh, same way that, that uh, production is taken care of on a farm with livestock operations or crop operations is there's nothing like the person that's living on that farm that knows it. Uh, they can wake up in the middle of the night and decide we're going to get some planting done tomorrow. Some of these farms don't operate uh, real efficiently in a in a corporate structure where somebody external or don't, doesn't have the love of that land and, and grandpa's advice uh, in the back of their head uh, to be able to care for that land. So I'm not sure how that's all going to play out. We certainly do see some large operations. We some see some parts of agriculture uh, that have really gravitated towards larger operations. The Bulk of the operations across the country are still family-owned. Some of them are corporations. It's, they'd look to transfer, you know, farming operations between generations, but uh, their families uh, that are operating these these farms, the decisions are made around kitchen tables, um, and these are folks that feel that weight of uh, earlier generations, that hope of younger generations that are walking with them across that farm. And uh, I tell you, they're going to be pretty competitive against any company out there that, that thinks that, uh, that there's a push button that they can operate from 1,000 miles away and farm. 
and just to switch gears a little bit here, uh, China has reopened its market to U.S. beef. What direction is the USDA taking towards helping farmers implement traceability and systems that support hormone-free production, which is a requirement for U.S. export beef to China? Yeah, so we see uh, some different criteria. Uh, China looked at some criteria or some, there has been some changes uh, in the soybean criteria as well, the amount of damaged crops that can go along uh, with the soybean seed or non-crop that can go along with the soybeans that we export. And there's a constant effort. It really happens through a different part of USDA, so I'm not up to speed on all the other pieces. But uh, there are a constant effort to come up with ways that help us increase those exports. And in some cases, there's extra requirements to be able to do that. Now, we also have a piece of USGA saying um, uh, the places where those requirements um, are, are not necessary will challenge those trade rules as well. Uh, and we've certainly seen some of those uh, from China from time to time or other places as well. And we'll get into our discussions about whether those are fair trade rules or unfair trade rules. And we'll push back on those unfair trade rules. In the meantime, you operate with the rules that you have, and for us to be able to get more exports into China, uh, there probably needs to be some traceability. Certainly, we're seeing some of that finally grow again after way too long of not having access into China. We had one case of BSE or a few cases of BSE back over 15 years ago. And that kept beef out of the Chinese market for 15 years when everybody else had come back and are buying beef. And uh, it took way too long. Um, we need open markets to be able to do it. And they're going to love the beef the U.S. producers produce uh, if they get a taste of it. Uh, so I, I think in the long run, it'll play out and we'll have our increases that we should have. We've got just a little bit more time, so I'm going to touch on a couple more things. Um, but let's talk about the dairy crisis, which um, groups like Farm Aid are saying is a reminder of what happened during the 1980 farm crisis, when as many as 2,100 farms closed a week. In Wisconsin, um, they're quoting a farm closes every day and a half because of oversupply and low milk prices. But on the flip side, some economists would say that the U.S. open market system has allowed more efficient farms to succeed, those that have grown in size and adopted a more technical approach to the operation. Is that the future, bigger, better, and those that are more innovative will succeed, or can systems like Canada's supply management system offer a market alternative? Yeah, it's a really challenging time right now in the dairy market, and, and uh, one of the challenges with milk is that you got to move it. Uh, and cows produce milk two or three times a day uh, as you as you uh, a farm will milk them, and they need to that needs to get on the road and go down down the road to a processing plant uh, either for liquid milk or cheese or yogurts or other kinds of things. Uh, we're seeing some increase in exports, which helps take a little bit of that supply. But we have some places we do not have enough processing capacity right now, and we see some dumping of milk going on. Uh, part of it is our producers of all sizes have gotten more efficient. Uh, our smaller producers are producing more than they used to produce. Uh, certainly our larger ones are as well. Uh, and it's a real challenge to try and get that right. To, for folks to quit that business, it's got to be very unprofitable. Uh, they work so hard. Uh, you'd think it'd be a lot easier to drive them out of business, but these are folks that plan uh, to be able to be in this business, have a commitment to it. 
um, and take some real losses before they'll get out. So it's a real challenge to try and, and not have so much pain for everybody out there. I do believe that we'll continue to get more efficient at all sizes. We see technology helping on some of our smaller producers uh, where they're using robotic milkers and other kinds of things that allow them to be competitive against the labor costs of larger producers uh, that are out there. Um, we have a, a program as well, the, a margin protection program uh, that was used a little bit by producers previously that just wasn't working, that Congress changed. We're in the process of sign-up right now uh, for those producers um, of a newer, improved uh, margin protection program. Is it going to be the answer to all the problems? It is not. Uh, is it going to take a little bit of the edge off? Maybe a little bit of that edge. But we do have to look at kind of rebalancing uh, the production um, and and the demand. I doubt that we'll see, it's really up to Congress and others, but I doubt that we'll see a supply management program like Canada and uh, although their producers might feel very good about it right now, they're abusing that program and dumping milk into markets that we used to have that we'd be very much more competitive against uh, if they weren't subsidizing that with charging their consumers a higher rate. So that's one of the issues out there in the trade discussions between the U.S. and, and Canada. Um, certainly that has created its own problems. If you're going to expand in Canada, you've got to buy quota. That means it's going to cost you more to buy quota than it will to buy the cows and build the barn. Um, that's not a painless system as well, especially for young people to try and get involved in the business. So there's not been a magic solution. It's hard. Um, hopefully more demand uh, will be a part of that and that we won't have to lose many more producers, but some producers are at the place where, uh, where it's just been too much, too long. They don't have another generation coming. Uh, and it's really, really hard to see. Um, but in some cases, some of those cows are going down the road and not going to another dairy. Yeah. And it, there's also a lot of you're talking about um, technology helping with some of these things. Um, gene editing, we're hearing so much about that and the future of CRISPR technology in ag from the Arctic apple to gene editing pigs for disease resistance. Did you ever imagine as a young boy on the farm that this would be the future of agriculture? And does this kind of science excite you or remind you of the precautionary principle? You know, it excites me. Um, I did not imagine it, not at all. Um, when you look at some of the conversation around CRISPR, and, and, and I'm sure most of the listeners understand we talk about biotechnology, being transgenic, actually taking a gene from another uh, species and putting it into this species. Um, uh, so that is a, a different kind of technology than CRISPR, actually editing, dropping genes that are there uh, so that you can can allow a, an apple not to brown um, or an animal to be healthier, uh, to avoid a disease or food safety issues. It's almost mind-blowing to think of all the possibilities here, uh, but an awful lot of those possibilities are ways that will make food safer. Uh, it are ways that we can care for our animals, uh, our land, and our plants to a better degree. We'll be more productive uh, with all the challenges that that brings as we talk about productivity. 
but in a world that's growing and a world that expects us to care for our land and our animals uh, in a better way, this technology is going to be very important to address some of those concerns that we have. Uh, it's also very democratic. Uh, it doesn't take a, a billion-dollar or million-dollar operation to be able to make some changes that will create some improvements. So rather than just some of our big crops, it'll be available for smaller crops, uh, for unique pieces uh, that people will care about. It's kind of mind-blowing again to think about how it can all be used, um, but it certainly is a technology that we want to be able to figure out how to use appropriately because it's going to be an important part of our future. We've covered a lot, but nowhere near all the areas that ag touches. Um, but to wrap things up, what would you say you're most interested in seeing develop with the future of ag from biofuels to biostimulants um, technology? And what is priority for you in your new role? Well, priority in my role is is the customer orientation that we need to take USDA, um, my farm production and conservation area. And so the ability to respond in a way that works for each producer, no matter what their crops or livestock is, wherever they're at. Uh, so we need to be relevant. Um, we need to be able to be responsive. But we also need to be efficient uh, with taxpayer dollars when when we do that. I'm excited about uh, the time that we're in, the opportunity for innovation, the entrepreneurship that there is in agriculture. We see, yes, we see some growth in some of our larger farms, uh, but we see brand new operations that are smaller vegetables, specialty cheese operations, mushroom operations. There are just so many creative kinds of activities out there that that uh, we're always have been a real challenge and still are, but our opportunities because we're able to market those products across a wider area, be able to produce those in a way um, that adds some some technology and some uniquenesses. Uh, so the specialty side of agriculture continues to grow uh, with lots of opportunities for individuals of all different sizes uh, in all different places, different families and different jobs, and whether they're part-time or full-time farming, uh, to find their place in agriculture. Uh, and then it also hopefully allows us to tell that story of, of how food gets to the plate somewhere too and be able to have folks appreciate agriculture uh, and all the folks uh, that that help make it happen to be able to feed everybody every day. Bill Northey is the Undersecretary of Agriculture for the Farm Production and Conservation Mission Area. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Ag Future Podcast presented by Alltech. For show notes and more episodes, visit alltech.com forward slash agfuture. future.